Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is a reference to the Father. We'll see this clarified in a moment. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you would go to Revelation 1 now. We'll start reading in 12, Revelation 1, verse 12. So John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. So write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand... And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You may be seated. As you're sitting down, I wanted to draw your attention, probably somewhere around your seat, you got a, a piece of paper there. I wanted to tell you about a theme that we're going to be doing at LifePoint this summer. Um, So we want to 
challenge, encourage, whatever the word may be. Um, that if you are a faithful giver, that you would continue to be faithful in your giving of your time, your treasure, and your talent. But if you're somebody who's connected to the church and you have not been giving time, talent, and treasure, we want to encourage you that over the next three months, June, July, and August, that you would trust God by giving. Again, not just of your money, but of your time, uh, other aspects of things. But I do want to emphasize just for a moment the giving of financially, to just trust God. There's a great verse in Malachi where God says, test me. And so if you're not giving at all, I want to ask you, would you pray about go home as a family and meet together a couple and talk about, okay, we're not giving. um, What could we give? And just begin to give something. Um, One of the reasons we want to do that and and have just kind of a a three-month emphasis of this is there are a lot of things that God has asked LifePoint to continue to do here as well as overseas. And we believe as elders that um, within this body of believers are enough resources that we could take care of things here and also a number of things that we're connected with in Asia that we could almost, if there was faithful giving, we could take care of those things this week. And so um, we're fine about taking care of those things in September um, as well. But we just wanted you to pray about that. Another thing that we're going to do this summer connected with that, so three months of kind of a stewardship aspect, we're also going to practice three different disciplines of the faith in June, July, and August. So tomorrow morning, you're going to get an email from us. If you're not on that email list, you can check on the internal Facebook page or you can check out uh, that. But we're going to uh, spend the month of June in, in practicing what meditation is. Meditation, not in the New Age sense, but meditation on the Word of God. Have you ever heard of this chapter called Psalm 119? Have you ever heard of that? Um, um, we're going to spend the month of June meditating on Psalm 119. So all of that, I know we're already into June, and we'll give some instructions, but we're going to just meditate and look at what the, the Scripture in Psalm 119 has to say about the Scripture. And so we're going to practice that discipline and learn a little bit more about that. All right. So I wanted to just kind of let you know about this page, a little information about tithing, and also um, uh, what we're going to do in some of the other disciplines. So the unveiling of Revelation that we have begun, this is the third week in this, is given to John, and it all begins as he is on the Isle of Patmos, so that John initially can see Jesus as the center of the unfolding of history. History past, present, as well as Jesus being the center of everything moving forward. And so Revelation makes clear to us that Jesus is the center of everything. Look with me in verse 20 just for a moment. So we're going to deal with these terms. Jesus defines them, but I want to touch on it just for a moment. Verse 20. So we're going to see in a moment Jesus has some stars in his hand. We're going to see John's going to turn. He's going to see the golden lampstands. So we need to understand what these are. So verse 20 says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the number seven is the number in the Bible of completion, of fullness. 
Now, when he uses the phrase here, angels, um, when, you get, when we get to in two weeks from today, to begin looking at the churches, the seven churches that Jesus addresses, he's going to immediately address the angel of a church in whatever city it is. These are not holy angels that are gathered around the throne. This is a reference to the pastor, the elder that is over that church. And the reason we know that is, is that Jesus in chapter 2 and 3 is going to deal with the failure of these churches and he's going to address um, the leader of the church um, who needs to do something about that. God's angels don't need correcting. They're holy. They do what's right. And so this is a reference to the elder of this church, the pastor of this church. The seven golden lampstands, verse 20 tells us, are representative of the seven churches that chapter 2 and 3 are going to go to. Pastor David Allen said this of Jesus in Revelation. Jesus is the sovereign, majestic, incomparable Jesus. If you delete the Lord Jesus from the Bible, you have a book without a subject. You have a play without a plot. You have music without harmony. An automobile without a motor. A ship without a rudder. Jesus Christ is the jugular vein of the Bible. He is the backbone of the Bible. He is the center and circumference of Scripture. And so this is the revelation of Jesus that has come to John. So let me look and just share with us um, about the symbols, and particularly in regard to the number seven um, that are found in the Scripture. So if you're taking notes today, that's the first point I want to point out is the symbols and seven that are here. And so we're going to begin to see a little bit more symbolism in here, particularly in regard to Jesus. But every one of these symbols has something behind it. There's either an Old Testament passage, there's another place that's there that allows us to have some clarity in regard to what these symbols actually mean. So again, some of them are a direct reference to something in the Old Testament. We just read one a while ago in Daniel uh, chapter 7. So this book was written to unveil to John a more clear picture of who Jesus is. This book has come to us, listen to this, to be understood. Many people approach the book of Revelation and just go, too hard, too much, too overwhelming to really understand. And I want to say, to counter that, God did not give us a book to hide things from us, but he gave us a book about Jesus, this one, to unveil things so that we can see things about who Jesus is. And so this is going to help us to understand more about him, not bring greater confusion about who he is. So seven, as I said a while ago, is the Bible number that indicates completeness, fullness, or perfection. The number seven is found in the entirety of the book of Revelation 55 times. The word seventh, with the T-H in it, is five times. And then there are 35 total phrases that connect sevens together, like in seals and bowls and some things of that nature. In chapter one alone, the word seven is mentioned 11 times. So here's what I want to say in regard to that. With so many references to seven in Revelation 1 and the rest of the book, and and seven is the indication of completion, of finality, of fulfillment of things. With all of this, it sets forth the idea that what we're reading is showing us 
what will be the fullness and the completeness of what God will do in the future as well as what God is doing today. So God, therefore, because he's the one completing it, he's the one who's behind all of this. He's the one who's behind history. He's the one who's, who's controlling today. And he's the one who will control the future. He is the only one who can begin it, sustain it, and finish it. That's why our faith has great confidence today. He can begin it, he can sustain it, and he can complete every aspect of that. So let's look at the second thing this morning um, that we looked at last week and we read again today. And it's this, is that God speaks to his people through his word as they worship him. So I want you to look again just for a moment. Look at verse 9. So John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he's, he's been persecuted. He's been sent away to this criminal island where he works in the copper mines there. And on a Sunday morning, he's worshiping, verse 10. So I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And from behind me, I heard a loud voice like a trumpet. And the voice said this, I want you to write and in, in what you see in a book and send it to seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then John, in verse 12, turns to see the voice. Who's got the voice? And we're going to see in just a second when he turns around, he doesn't see immediately the one who has the voice, the trumpet sounding voice. He's going to see the seven golden lampstands. But I want to remind us this morning that what we are doing in this room today is incredibly important. What you do at your kitchen table or wherever it is that you study the scripture, every moment of those when we are reading about Jesus and worshiping him in the scripture are are key moments where God unveils more and reveals more about who he is. A few weeks ago, we talked about that we are called by God to be experts on who Jesus is. That of all the people on the earth, that it's his redeemed people that should know the aspects of the glory of Jesus. And so here's John in his 90s, exiled because of his faithful proclamation and testimony of Jesus, continuing to worship even though he is there all by himself. And his worship on that day is characterized by the Holy Spirit's control and the Holy Spirit's Leadership. This is not an out-of-control worship moment that John is having here. That sometimes you see in places where there's ecstatic um, utterances or shaking or falling down. John is in his mind. He's worshiping, focused on Jesus. And he sees and he understands everything that is happening that he is having during this worship experience. And so John now turns to see the voice who's got this voice who now is behind him, he's probably shocked by this. And he turns around, and when he turns around, he doesn't immediately see Jesus, but he sees seven golden lampstands. And I want to talk about those now in our third point this morning. So the second part of verse 12 just says that, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now we just saw in verse 20 a while ago, okay, I hope you're listening. This this is a response question. 
What do the seven golden lampstands represent? The churches, okay? So he turns and he sees seven golden lampstands that he's going to learn about are a representation of what the church is to be and the seven churches that he's to write this letter to originally. They were to get this. They were to be the original recipients of this letter. So John turns, doesn't see the person behind the voice that sounds like a trumpet, but his eyes are drawn to seven lamps. Our eyes are always drawn to that, drawn to the light. John turns, he sees the light, it captures his eye. You've got seven golden lampstands. Now, we probably all of us have seen a Jewish menorah that's one piece and it's got the seven things with it. That's not what John is seeing here. What John is seeing are actual individual um, lampstands that they would put the olive oil in and they would burn things in their house and other places. And so he sees seven individual ones. He's not seeing one piece with seven pieces to it, but seven individual things. So this is not a, an electric lamp. Nobody went over and flipped a switch, pushed a button. But these are lamps that are burning with pure olive oil. Now we know from the Old Testament and the New Testament, the olive oil represents the Holy Spirit. So as John turns to see, he sees that the Holy Spirit is at work, and he doesn't know this yet, but he will come to know this. We know this in our study now because we've had a lot of history to, to do this. He sees seven churches who have their source as the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. There's a light that's there that is burning, connected to the Spirit, being connected to these seven churches. Now in the Old Testament, the lampstand was a type of Christ picturing what Jesus would be like when He came and He brought light into the world. So Jesus came and He even said that about Himself in Jerusalem one day. So in John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus said, and Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we're going to see a a duality here. John immediately turns. He sees seven individual big golden lampstands. They are burning with pure olive oil, representing that the Spirit is at work in these seven churches. He is the source of the power. The Holy Spirit births the new life. The Holy Spirit was there. Remember Acts chapter 2, they're in the upper room. They're praying. The Holy Spirit comes. He empowers them. They go out of the upper room, go into the streets, and they begin to proclaim Jesus. People are hearing the message of Jesus on that day, and a couple thousand people come to faith on that day. So the Spirit is the source of power in the midst of our lives and in the midst of the church. So what do lampstands do What is their function? Well, they are to give light in places of darkness. And since we know that these lampstands represent churches, the meaning is clear that the church is to give off light. The church is to be a place that shines in the darkness. The church is not the source of the light, but they allow Jesus to shine through them as they surrender to Him and allow Him to lead and surrender to the working of the Holy Spirit. So we are called as His people to be light in the world. Let me remind you of a few other places of where this is. This is Philippians 2.14. 
Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus in 5, 7 through 9. He says, therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Another one that's famous that we know from Jesus' mouth, Matthew five sixteen. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that when they see your good deeds that are right and true and good, they will not honor you, but they will honor the one who is moving in you, your Father, and they will glorify the Father because of the deeds in which you are to do. So John turns, sees seven lampstands being empowered by the Holy Spirit, burning, and there's a flame there. And so the church is to represent Christ and to be an example, we are to represent Christ and to shine. So here we see the Holy Spirit among the church with the seven lampstands. The Holy Spirit is ready to help right now in this moment. He is speaking to us. He is protecting us. He is directing us. He is blessing us, encouraging us, challenging us. And He is always faithful in our midst. So light casts forth that. Y'all remember a time when we never had flashlights with us, and now we have flashlights with us all the time on our phones. And, and now it's just much easier. We just reach in our pocket. We can kind of push a button. A light goes out from the phone and cast forth light in front of us so that we can walk. And so that's what light does, and that's what we have been called to do. That's what the church has been called to do, to shine for the glory of Jesus and to cast forth light in regard to who he is. And so... John sees this light with the seven golden lampstands. And I think it's also the meaning here is connected with that being a lampstand is something that burns, that there's a passion, there's an aliveness that is there. And as the light, we know this, that the light also casts forth truth. That's another aspect that we understand of what light is. So churches are to be truth-oriented, scripture-driven, Casting light before people so that they may know who God is as they hear the gospel. What color are the lampstands? Does anybody remember what what color they are? They are golden. What does that represent? Gold is a symbol of the deity of Christ. So therefore, since the lampstands are gold, they get their gold from who? From Jesus. Not from in and of themselves. They are gold because Jesus is precious and prized and and the most highly valuable one. And so the churches are to get their significance and their value, not from themselves or who their pastor is or what kind of building they have or how big they are. They get their value because they have been redeemed by the glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our value today is from Him and not from anything else. So the very fact that the lampstands are golden refers to the value that these churches have in the eyes of Jesus. They are precious and valuable to Him. As a matter of fact, 
God loves the family. It's the first institution that he began. But there's only one institution that he calls his bride, and that's the church. And to the church, he gives this aspect of of his deity, his glory, his magnificence, and that the church is to be connected as a golden lampstand. So you put lamps in dark places, in strategic places. You don't put them in a closet underneath the stairs and leave them on all night. They do no good in there unless you go in the closet underneath the stairs, which is a rarity. But lights are put out so that people can see where to go and what to do. So I say this this morning, if a church casts darkness, which is a possibility, then they have lost their purpose. How does a church cast darkness? It doesn't teach Jesus. It makes other things greater than Jesus and his glory. So if a church casts darkness, they've lost their purpose. But if a church casts light by being connected to the truth of Jesus and making much of who Jesus is, then that church will stay on course. Darkness will continue in our day and time until the very end. And so it is going to become even more important for God's people and churches to cast forth light in our love for the glory of Christ and our love for the word of God. I just, I've been doing a lot of study um, over the past couple of months. And um, one of the things I was looking at yesterday in, in some of my research for things, and I will share it in the weeks to come in one of the talks that we will do uh, with the seven churches. There are, throughout the history of, of the U.S., there are 10 uh, original huge mainline denominations. And this guy that I've been reading and looking at has been tracing them over the last 30 years and particularly since about 2016 when things really began exponentially to increase in regard to people falling away from the church. And what he has discovered in this, and it's pretty fascinating, and you probably won't find it um, shocking at all, but places like the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, uh, some of the aspects of Presbyterian churches that have all begun to allow immorality in in views of sexuality to be different, all ten of those mainline places have seen up to a 80% decrease in attendance since 2016. But the churches like ours have seen exponentially there's been an increase of people. And what, what this guy is finding out, and it's true, is that there are a lot of people like you and I in America still today, praise God for, that love the truth that aren't going to be unloving to others, but have to stand on what's true. And those churches are, and there's new churches being started all the time. Younger generations are starting churches, and this will continue to happen. And so so in some ways, there is a big, huge, massive falling away from some of the really big mainline churches. But one of the things that God is doing that's not noticeable statistic-wise is that God is still at work in America. He is still starting churches. He is still moving his people to a place of holiness. So, John, now let's look at the fourth thing. Sees the seven golden lampstands, and then he sees someone in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So let's look at that. Look at verse 13. 
So, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Jesus referred to himself as a son of man 81 times in the four gospels. It was his most favorite phrase that he spoke and he used of himself. Y'all remember when Stephen was stoned to death? Right before he died, the stones are hitting him. He looks up into heaven. The heavens open up. And Stephen says these words. He sees the Son of Man standing. Not sitting, but standing. So Stephen, even there, refers to Jesus in Acts 7.56 as the Son of Man. So we just read it a while ago in Daniel chapter 7. You've got the Ancient of Days who is the Father, eventually uh, the one like a Son of Man comes, Jesus comes, and Jesus is given. We see this later in Revelation 5. He has given the title deed to the earth because everything is moving toward this glorification and this honor of who Jesus is. And so John turns, sees seven golden lampstands. They are pouring forth light, representative of the Spirit birthing those churches. And in the midst of those, he sees one who looks like the Son of Man. This representative, this phrase, Son of Man, representative of Jesus' humanity, that he left his throne in heaven, he came here, he took on flesh. Not only that, but him being the Messiah, the one who died to redeem us, sent by the Father. And so here's Jesus, right in the midst of the church. I want to remind you and I of this. He told us through his last words before he ascended to his apostles, he told, told, he told his people this, I am going to be with you to the very end of the age. You can, you can bank on this. I'm not leaving you alone. He's already been telling them when I go away is for your benefit because if I go away, I will send someone to you, the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into truth. He will empower you. He will teach you. He will be all these things that Jesus taught in the upper room. So again, John turns. He sees Jesus in the midst of the churches. And, he, and it's a reminder that he's still with the church. So let me remind you of this promise. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, know this. I will be with you, my people. As you take the gospel to the ends of the earth, I will be with you to the end of the age. And I have some most... I was thinking about this last night. I was sitting at the bar in my house walking through this thinking about this moment right now when we come to this place. I want to remind you of something that's amazing. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, eternal Son of God, powerful, is in this room right now. He's right here. For those of us who know Him, He's inside of us. He has promised His people that He will be with them until the very end of the age. And so John turns and sees Jesus in the midst of seven churches that will be representative of all churches in regard to the future. So here he is right now in this moment, standing in the midst of life point. And John sees the glory and the personal presence of Jesus among the seven churches. 
which reveals to us that he cares about the church. He cares about being in the midst of the church. That's why he's so concerned about the condition of the church today. It is critical for the church to be a witness and a testimony of the light of Christ and a witness to who he is. And so the Savior comes and he's in the midst of the church and he examines the churches. He speaks to the churches and he points out what's good and he points out what needs to change and what must be repented of. Look in chapter 2, verse 5, just for a moment there. It should be right there in front of you. Y'all remember the church in Ephesus? Such a, it's got a, it's got six chapter book. Paul, Paul pastored it for three years. John pastored it. Timothy pastored it. Great leadership, but look at chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If you don't, if not, I will come to you, Ephesus, and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's a strong word. What does that mean? If he's going to remove the lampstand of the church of Ephesus, what is he going to do? He said, I will shut you down. And I will remove this calling that you've had to be a light in Asia Minor of the gospel. So sometimes Jesus is going to be extremely hard in the manner in which a church operates its ministries as he did with Ephesus. So therefore, seeing Jesus stand in the middle of the seven churches there reminds you and I that where must he be in our church? Right in the middle. He must be the center of everything at life point. Nothing is to get in the way of Jesus being in the middle of all that we do. So then John looks closer at the one who's in the middle of the churches, who is the Son of Man, and he recognizes this, and then he begins to write about the splendor of what he saw here. And let's look at that. There's the fifth thing this morning. Let's look at the splendor of his majestic ministry. Our faith is different than all the other religions of the world. They are, they are I guess somebody could say Jesus is famous. But many false religions were built on kind of celebrity kind of people in their day. Um, none of them have been mocked like Jesus has and, and have been the people have been persecuted like Christians have. But I want to remind you and I that our faith has been grounded on the one who died and the one who remains alive forevermore, who holds the key to death in Hades. So note this. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. So John hears a trumpet. It's loud. It's a voice. He turns Thinking, who's speaking this? He turns, sees seven golden lampstands burning, indicating being birthed by the Spirit, Spirit a part of the churches. Then he sees the Son of Man, not only the Spirit a part of the churches, Jesus a part of the churches in the midst of this. And then he looks at the one who's the Son of Man, and he begins to see some incredible things. Now think about this for a moment. John lived, walked with Jesus for over three years. Probably more than anybody on the earth, nobody knew Jesus more than John did. He's the last remaining apostle. 
For over six decades of his life, he has been walking faithfully, being persecuted for his faith, not giving in, not giving up, but maintaining this patient endurance that he talked about a while ago. And for the first time in 60 years, he turns and he sees Jesus. And he sees Jesus in a way that he didn't see him back then. Now, there was a moment in Matthew 17 where some of the apostles got to go up on a mountain and Jesus was transfigured. His clothing became bright. But it didn't talk about in Matthew 17, feet of bronze, a sword out of his mouth. Moses and Elijah appear. John was present for that. But now he turns and and he's going to see more about the in-depth nature of Jesus. And so again, I, I thought, I thought what, an, what a moment when John realized that he's seeing Jesus again, what that must have been like for him to contemplate this new revelation and depth that he had not seen and know before. Now, before we begin to walk through this, I want to touch on this because I think it's absolutely critical and we cannot miss it. Are y'all ready to not miss something? Yes. This is what we're about to walk through, the most extensive picture of Jesus among the church. This is a picture of who he is, what he does, what he values in the church, and it can't be missed. We will see how he is at work today and in the weeks to come. He loves the church And we are to love the church as well. But hear this. At the end of the first century, John is on Patmos. He turns and sees seven lampstands. He sees the Son of Man, Jesus, standing in the midst of those. And he begins to look closely and describe the characteristics of the one who is being unveiled before him. This is, listen, the last scriptural detail that emphasized Jesus in the New Testament. Therefore, Jesus ascended. So now in Revelation 1, we see him in the midst of the church. And we cannot, listen to this, we cannot see him in any other way than what is seen here. Walking in the midst of the church, revealing to the church, this is who I am. And all around us today, churches are adjusting ministries and aspects of who Jesus is that aren't in line with what John sees and describes for us here. So what I'm about to walk us through is what we at this church cannot ever compromise on in regard to the revelation of Jesus, the teaching about Jesus, and ministry for Jesus. Here's the first one. He is the great high priest. John turns and sees this one. He's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash is around his chest. This is the clothing of what the high priest wore. It echoes what Isaiah saw 800 years before. Do you remember in Isaiah 6? What filled the heaven? The temple, the train of the robe, he saw Jesus in heaven and the train of his robe literally filled the temple. This is a picture, a New Testament picture of the great high priest. The people who wore robes 
back in the day at the end of the first century were two people, people of royalty and priests. John sees, as he sees Jesus, he sees this role that Jesus has as the great high priest. Listen to these words, Hebrews 4.14 and following. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God. Let us hold fast then our confession. Listen how incredible this is. This one who was here, took on flesh, lived a human life, lived it perfectly, learned how to, how to withstand temptation, has now gone through the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father, the Ancient of Days in heaven is our great high priest. Look, listen to what the scripture says here. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet remained without sin. Hebrews 7, 23 and following. In the context of talking about priests, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's the first thing that we must Never lose sight of at life point. I am not, neither is anybody else at this church, neither will anybody else in the future. We are little priests in a sense. We've become a kingdom of priests, but we have one great high priest and it's Jesus. I can pray for you. I can do that, but I cannot be your high priest. And so churches that get who he is constantly tell everybody, leadership and the people that come, Jesus is the one who is interceding for us, who is for us. The second thing that he sees there is the holiness and wisdom of Jesus. He looks at his head. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. Again, this picture goes back to Daniel chapter 7 that we read just a moment ago. The word white here is a Greek word called lukos, and it means brilliant, bright, radiant. It indicates that he's holy and that he's wise in everything that he does. And so I want to remind you and I this morning, holiness matters to God. He, Jesus, is the standard of holiness. I am not that, neither is anybody else. Jesus is holiness. Jesus is wisdom. So this speaks of his purity. He's had it from ancient times, and he will have it for forever and ever and ever. He has always had this purity and this holiness. Remember in Isaiah 6? The angels are calling forth to one another. This one who is the great high priest whose train fills the temple in heaven. Can you imagine how big that place is? And the angels are calling back to one another threefold things. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so John looks and turns. The great high priest is wise and he is holy. For it is... 
indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, Hebrews 7.26. So John sees the great high priest. The church must make Jesus the great high priest, keep him in the forefront. The church is to be about holiness. It is to be about seeking the wisdom that comes from walking in the scripture. And the third image that he sees there, look at second part of verse 14. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He's walking in the midst of the church with eyes that are on fire, looking, watch this, looking for righteousness in the church. Do you remember what he says in Matthew 24 that when the Son of Man returns to the earth, will he even be able to find people on the earth who have faith? As the pressure increases upon people, when he comes back, Jesus is posing the question and the idea, is he going to find faith there? And so here in the midst of the church, he's walking with a piercing gaze, looking for righteousness. And where there is sin, his piercing gaze in the midst of that sin is to burn away the sin and to deal with the sin there. There is nothing that he cannot see. We do this still. And we ought to know better. We will sin at some time thinking, well, nobody knows. Oh, yeah, somebody knows. He who stands in the midst of the church has a burning gaze and nothing is hidden from his sight. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So no one escapes the piercing gaze of Jesus. And when he looks, he reveals the deepest thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. So we can fool everybody else, but we cannot fool the all-wise one, the holy one. And what he sees and values are much more important than what anybody else sees in anybody else's word of value. And so we've got to be connected to him. And we have to adjust. The church must continually adjust to Jesus. Telling you right now, you hear it all the time, and I know us, this is not our mindset, but I want to say it anyway. We are not ever to tell him to adjust to us. It's not our role. He's God. And the constant thing is we adjust to him. And when we adjust to him, we get more of him. The more we are like him, the more we get of him and more we understand the treasure that he is. Look at his feet, 15, first part. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. When Jesus was on the earth... His feet led him all over Israel as he preached and ministered in the towns and villages. His feet carried him places where he healed and freed and gave salvation and did so many different things. At the very end of his life, his feet were carrying the weight of the cross in the city streets of Jerusalem. And they could no longer hold up his body and he fell down to the ground. And when he got to the place of the crucifixion, his feet felt the searing pain of nails being placed in them. As he hung on the cross, people died of suffocation on the cross, so you'd have to push up on the nails of your feet to be able to breathe. And so as he pushed up on his feet to be able to breathe, that's what his feet were like the first time. 
And I want to say this, that that will never, ever happen again. We will not trample on his blood again. This time John sees that his feet are as brass is put in the refiner and they're bright. The, the kind of idea here is, as John saw Jesus' feet here, they are glowing. And as he walks in the midst of the church, not only does he have piercing gaze, but he has feet where he steps, bring holiness that is connected to his nature. In foreshadowing Jesus, the bronze altar in the tabernacle in the temple is where um, they lit a fire that consumed the sin offering in Exodus 38.30. So eventually Jesus will stamp out with the foot of his judgment all that is contrary to his will and all that oppose him. And so his feet are strong. They are steadfast and they are holy. And so a church is to be a place that values holiness that is connected to Jesus. So John goes from his feet and now he looks up at the face a little bit clearly and he's going to give some other pictures there. And there's a voice that comes out. It's not like a trumpet now. It's a roar of many waters. This is a holy roar. And I don't know who invented the word roar. That is a hard word to say. But it's a holy roar. And it's, it's like, if you, I've never been to Niagara Falls. I want to go there, but I've been to some other waterfalls. And it's just, you can hear it from a distance. And the closer you get to it, the louder and louder and louder and louder it gets. And so John's already heard the voice of Jesus like a trumpet. Now it's like this roaring waterfall that, watches that pours forth truth unending. A couple of years ago, we went to... Um, Kurdistan. And when we were in Kurdistan, we went to this place that they can trace back for the last 5,000 years. There's this mountain there and water has just been gushing out of this mountain for 5,000 years. And we stood there and it's just loud as it just pours forth. Inside that mountain, there's a water source that for 5,000 years has come up and out of that mountain. As I stood before it, I was by myself for a few moments, and I just worshipped thinking about the Samaritan woman as they're talking about thirst and thinking about Jesus in John 7 when he said, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me, and he will drink, and from within him will flow rivers of living water. And so now John hears this magnificent voice Saying something, John doesn't record what's there, but John's hearing King Jesus as a holy roar, powerful waterfall, speaking eternal truth. This portrays Jesus as the absolute voice of authority to which all human authority must bow and submit to. And today in our culture, it turns a deaf ear to his voice, and some Christians do, and some churches do, but there is coming a day when he will speak, and his voice will not be able to be ignored, and every, every knee will bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. So the same voice that spoke the world into existence is the one who also rescued the thief and said, today you will be with me, In paradise, this is an overwhelming voice. 
And therefore, we must see that the prominent voice in the church is not to be you or me or anybody else. The dominant voice of the church is this book. Our proclamation of teaching what God has spoken has come to us. And so this is how we live. This is what we listen to. And we let it be this never-ending waterfall flowing upon God's people. Then John looks at the hand of Jesus and he's got stars in his hands. Who do the stars represent? Well, again, I don't think that, that though he says the word angel here, the word angel in the Greek literally means messenger. Angels obviously were messengers, but angels were pure. And so as we walk through the seven churches, Jesus has to address the pastor, elder of these churches because of some things that are happening and taking place. So, so he's holding in his right hand seven stars, which means Jesus is right-handed. Sorry, left-handed people. He holds the pastors and the elders in his hand. Right hand, biblically indicating power. So he holds the seven stars. Stars are to shine light. They are declare, to declare things. They are to expose things here. So hear this. Preachers, elders are to show the light of God in the church on the people that they lead, that they have been entrusted with. The light that they show is not their own light, it's the light of Jesus. And so therefore, they are to be surrendered to Jesus in a very significant way. They are to be reflectors of the glory of Jesus. Not trying to be the light, He's the light, but allowing him to shine from their light. When you go to a place that's very legalistic, it's all about trying to produce glory. But when you come to grace, it's all about reflecting the glory that is already present. Nothing needs to be produced. So how do pastors, elders do this? How do they, being held by Jesus and having this purpose, how do they shine the way that they are supposed to? By teaching the truth of him who roars like a waterfall. The true nature of a pastor's role is not to be an administrator, a money raiser, a marketer, a promoter, but to be a communicator of God's word. Pastors must study. They must preach. And in so doing, they point people to the light, to the high priest, to the one who speaks. They are to call everyone to God's standards, whether people want to hear it or whether they don't want to hear it. And the church will suffer if the primary role of the pastor is not that. The church suffers. And I'm so incredibly grateful that that's not the case for us, that you give me time to study and that you treasure that and you want that and our elders fight for that. So the sole authority in the church does not rest with me. It rests with Jesus. He bought the church. He founded the church. He's the cornerstone of the church. But we have been entrusted, held in his hand, called by him to be proclaimers, casting forth light in the scripture. So the great aim of the church and pastors is to shine forth through the proclamation of the scripture, the voice of Jesus, so that people would see who he is. So he 
is the authority in the church. From his mouth, now he says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So in the midst of the church, he uses, Jesus uses this. This Greek word here is the long Roman sword. If you've ever seen any of those, they would have short daggers that the Roman soldiers would use. And then they would have this longer one. This in the Greek, is, this is the longer one. And it's the only thing that Jesus uses. Note, note this. The only offensive thing that he uses is his word. We are a part of a kingdom of words connected to the holiness and the glory of God. Jesus used words to call us to himself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is a sword, a two-edged sword, so sharp it can even cut as it pierces us, dividing bone and marrow. That's how sharp it is. And so John sees from his mouth this sharp sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. And when he looked at his face, directly into his face, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You see, the glory of Christ will either be a blessing to Christ's followers or it will bring fear to unbelievers. Revelation 22, 4 says, I can't wait for this day. This is us. And they shall see his face and his name shall be on their forehead. We will be his. And John at this moment is like, "Uh uh-oh. And he describes what happened to him. There's a couple of times in my life where this has happened. I wish it were more, where I've been so overwhelmed in the presence of God that it just physically undoes you. And John just falls to the ground. What does he realize at this moment? Who is he in the presence of? Holiness, Jesus. And he's like, man, I survived it last time up on the mountain, but am I going to survive this one? And he falls just overwhelmed like a dead man. And he does what any one should do who recognizes the magnificent glory of Jesus is just to fall before him. And I love this. The one who's, who has this powerful right hand holding the stars, the seven stars, comes over and touches John with a hand that he's using to protect the pastors and the servants. And in gentle tenderness, he says to John, hey, John, it's okay. Don't need to be afraid. And in this room today, if you are overwhelmed by fear, whatever it is, whatever label that we want to put on it, and we want to trust that all that we just talked about this morning that John describes about Jesus is true about who he is, but we just don't know. There's been too much pain, too much time. How do I, how do I move forward? I, I, I wish I could do it for you. I can't do it for you, but I know this to be true that he's here in this room today and would go down every aisle of this place and would say to you, no, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because I am, what he's about to say here, I am the first and I am the last and I'm everything in between and I can be trusted in every kind of way. And so he tells John that I remain 
And so if we are His, we are okay. All is going to be right, for He is sovereign. He is the ever-living one. He is the first and last. He is the self-existent one. He is before all. He will be after all. Therefore, we can trust Him and not fear. So John sees and Jesus says, I am the author and the finisher of history. I am the first. I am the last. I am the originator of all things. And I will finish all things. He spans the entirety of all of human history and He is in control of all of it all the way moving forward. So therefore, He can be trusted. Yeah, but I don't have money in my bank account. Well, some of us do and come talk to us. And we'll put some money in your bank account and we will remind you that He's got resources. There is not a fear in this room today that isn't found its answer and fulfillment. In Jesus. Not a one. So he's first and last. He's the living one. And he's alive forevermore. And he has the keys of death. And Hades. Because I'm a door. Freak. I love looking at door handles. And locks and all that stuff. With all the doors. I, I, love, this, I love this imagery. He has the keys. You come to my house today, you'd have to punch in a code and I'm not giving it to you. We know it. You may have one of those and I could come to your house and I can't get in your house because I don't have the key, I don't have the numbers to be able to get in. Listen, listen to this church as we finish. Jesus has the keys to death, to the finality of finality of finality of things. He has the key, and guess what he did? He came and died on a cross, and he opened the door to say this to all who come. I have the power and the authority to grant unto you eternal life. Let me close with this. We probably all can relate to this. There was a father one day in his study, and he was trying to read the newspaper back, I guess, when newspapers meant something. I don't even know if you can find a news. I guess you can find a newspaper somewhere. But he was trying to read the Sunday paper. And his little daughter, as small children do, kept coming into the room and interrupting him and asking him question after question. Finally, he kind of gotten enough of it. He loved her, but he thought, I'd like to read the paper. So he grabbed a map of the whole world and he cut it up into puzzle pieces, into a bunch of pieces, and said, I tell you what, he said, go in here put the puzzle together, and he thought, this will keep her busy for some time, and uh, I'll be able to read the paper. Well, in just a few minutes, she came back into the room with it completely put together. <laughs> He's like, what in the world can I do to get away from this kid? And he said, how in the world, how did you do this? How did you put it quickly? You don't even know anything about geography. You don't know where things are to go. You know a little bit about puzzles, but you don't know anything about the countries. And this is what she said. She said, Dad, I don't know if you knew this or not, but on the other side of what you cut up as the map of the world was a picture of Jesus. And so when I put Jesus in all the right places, everything came together. And I'm here to say to you, to, to just remind us today of that truth. When Jesus is in the right place in the church, in our lives, in our families, everything else is going to be okay.
There's nothing to fear. Let's pray.